Well, friends, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Today we're beginning a new sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. The series is titled Meals with Jesus. About a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, uh, we had friends over for dinner. And it was the first time in over a year that we had had people in our home to sit down around the table and enjoy a meal because of some family health issues. We've had to be extra careful during COVID. And so Stephanie and I were very excited to be able to have friends over to open up our home again. And there were nine of us gathered around the table, the whole Wenzel family, a couple friends, and we enjoyed each other's company. We enjoyed Mexican food from Los Charros. I told you we liked that place. We, we told stories, we laughed, we talked about hurts and disappointments, and it was a wonderful time. And as you know, meals are about much more than food, aren't they? They, they represent friendship, they represent fellowship and welcome and belonging. You know, some of the most memorable moments in your life may have happened around a table. I can still remember very vividly the, the table, the scene at the Italian restaurant that Stephanie and I ate at the night that I proposed to her. You can probably think of similar events. Meals were important in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, one scholar's written that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And Jesus had a reputation for enjoying sitting down with others, actually reclining with others around the table, eating and drinking. And these shared meals that Jesus enjoyed with others, they, they are some of the most important moments in Jesus' ministry. In these moments, Jesus reveals profound truths about who he is, about what he came to do, and even what it means to belong to his kingdom. And so over the next nine weeks or so, we're going to be looking at different meals with Jesus in Luke's gospel. We're not going to go through the entire gospel, but select events in the life of Christ as presented to us in Luke's gospel where Jesus is eating with others or using parables about meals and so forth. We've entered into this new season where we have greater freedom to gather around a table together as a church and even with those outside of our church. And so we're praying that, that what we see about Jesus here in the Gospel of Luke would profoundly shape us, both individually as individual believers and even as a church. And so today we're going to look at a meal that's a story about scandalous grace. Jesus dines with a man named Levi and his friends, and we'll see why some of the observers thought that it was scandalous. So I'm going to read verses 27 to 32, and then we'll pray together one more time. So Luke 5, beginning in verse 27. After this, he, that is Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's go before the Lord one more time in prayer and ask for his help. Our God and Father, we do ask that you would help us to see our Savior this morning in your holy word. And as we gaze upon his beauty and his grace, we ask that you would transform us more and more into his likeness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this story here, very brief, but it begins with the call of Levi, also known as Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew. And right there at the beginning, Jesus finds Levi working at the tax booth, or sort of like a customs post, likely in Capernaum, near the Sea of Galilee. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that this scene is very similar to the calling of the first four disciples that Luke records earlier in the chapter. But there's a a significant difference here, a, a surprise. Those first four men that Jesus called, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, they were fishermen, not, not members of the rid, religious elite, just common men, but somewhat respected as, as businessmen and entrepreneurs. Levi, on the other hand, as Luke tells us here, <clears throat> is a tax collector. And there are probably very few American children that um, dream of working for the IRS when they grow up. It's not a glamorous profession. But in ancient Israel, not only was tax collecting not glamorous, tax collectors were hated. They had a reputation for being dishonest, for being greedy. They were extortioners. They were more like um, mobsters than government bureaucrats. And they were men who enriched themselves at the expense of their own countrymen. And so they were despised. But, But on top of all that, they were considered traitors collaborators with Rome, the occupying power. And so tax collectors, men like Levi, were despised social outcasts. These were um, people that no one in Israel wanted anything to do with except for maybe other tax collectors. And so right here at the beginning, in a public place where others can see, where others can hear what's going on, Jesus invites a tax collector to join his band of disciples. He says there in verse 27, follow me. And then we read that Levi does exactly that. And leaving everything behind, he rose and followed him. So right here at the beginning, this has all the makings of a scandal. Why would Jesus, who's supposed to be a teacher from God, a rabbi, why would he want anything to do with this lowlife? But then it gets worse. Look at verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So calling Levi to be his disciple was bad enough. That that already had the makings of a scandal. Now Jesus is hanging out in Levi's home. And not only is he just there on a visit, He's reclining at table with Levi and Levi's friends, a bunch of other tax collectors. This is a party. It's a banquet that Levi's thrown in honor of Jesus. I think he's, he's invited his friends. He wants them to meet Jesus, this man who has shown grace to him. He's excited to bring his friends in to meet Jesus. And, and Mark's 
account of this story tells us that there were already many tax collectors and sinners who were following Jesus, and that's part of the reason some of them were there. Earlier I said that shared meals are about more than just food, and that's true for us here in 21st century, but it was especially true in Jesus' day in Israel. Breaking bread together symbolized those things I talked about earlier, friendship and fellowship and welcome, and, and they were very intimate gatherings. You know, don't picture people seated around a table. Uh, they, they are reclining on the ground, probably on top of some pillows, leaning on their left arm with their heads toward the table, a low table full of food, legs pointed out toward the perimeter of the room. You know, this is not a formal black-tie dinner like you would see in, in Downton Abbey, you know, stuffy and refined and genteel. Uh, this, it, they're close together. They're sharing food, there's, there's talking, there's laughing. And you notice there in verse 29 that Luke says the guest list included tax collectors and others. In a moment, we'll see that the Pharisees call them tax collectors and sinners. In other words, Jesus isn't keeping company with the well-to-do, with the respected members of Jewish society with the, those who are known as models of civic and religious virtue. He's, Jesus is surrounded by the kind of people that good Jewish men and women tried very hard to avoid. You know, He's there with the poor and the marginalized, with those who weren't as scrupulous about maintaining the, the, the um, purity rituals. But he's also there with the morally compromised Often in the Gospels, that that phrase, tax collectors and sinners, is used interchangeably with tax collectors and prostitutes. And so no doubt there were some there at this gathering. They were about the only people who would associate with tax collectors. And next week we'll look at another dinner party where Jesus commends a prostitute for her faith. And so just to try to help us picture this in contemporary terms, Um, picture a a meal, a banquet. There's a few homeless men and women there. You know, their clothes are filthy. They haven't showered in weeks. Maybe some of them are suffering from mental illnesses, and so it makes for a very awkward situation. Perhaps some illegal immigrants there at the table, women wearing um, tops and skirts that no father would uh, even want his daughter to leave the home dressed in. Maybe some drug addicts whose faces tell a story of hopelessness and despair. So I think you get the idea. This is not exactly the kind of party that you and I would be eager to attend. And here's God incarnate, the long-awaited Messiah, and what's he doing? Is he gathering an army, preparing to drive out the Romans? No, he's feasting with riffraff. He's celebrating with misfits, the, the broken and the sinful, the unwanted, the unloved, the unseen, the unimportant, the used and abused, people whom others regard as beyond the pale. And Jesus isn't there reluctantly. This was no surprise to him. This wasn't like Levi said, hey Jesus, come over this evening 
And Jesus arrives, and there's all these, these uh, misfits there, and Jesus thinks, well, I've got to go in now. No, he's, he's there on purpose. He's not pinching his nose in disgust as he reclines at table with these people. He wants to be there. And then look at what happens next in verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. And so the Pharisees catch wind of what's going on. We don't know exactly how. Maybe one of Levi's neighbors told them what was going on. Perhaps they saw Jesus and his disciples go into Levi's home. And, and probably sometime later, they confront Jesus' disciples. And it's interesting, isn't it? They don't, they don't go directly to Jesus and they don't say, why is Jesus eating with, with these folks? They say, why are you eating with these folks? I think they're a little intimidated by Jesus. Have you ever had a conversation where you're asked a question, but it's not really a question? It's an accusation. That's exactly what's going on here. The Pharisees are not happy with Jesus. He's breaking their rules and their traditions. If you've read the Gospels, you know a bit about the Pharisees. They were a religious sect in ancient Israel. And you know, if you've read the Gospels, that Jesus and the Pharisees did not get along very well. In fact, the Pharisees hated Jesus. And, and because of that, we often think of them as the bad guys, you know, the, the enemies. But that's not how they were viewed in first century Israel. They, they were the theological conservatives. They were the ones who longed for God to restore Israel to national greatness. They were eagerly waiting for the return of the Messiah so, who would set things right. And, and they believed, and I think they were sincere in this belief, that God would act when Israel purified itself from its sinful ways. And so they took purity very seriously. And that was both ritual purity and moral purity. <clears throat> and so the Pharisees were largely respected by the common people. And their approach to piety could be summarized in one word, separation. These guys invented social distancing. <laughs> they believed God's people must separate themselves from all that is unclean and impure. And so they were very meticulous about keeping the, the dietary laws and the cleanliness laws laid out in the Torah. And then on top of that, they added all their, their own regulations. And so these, these men focused on avoiding unclean food, avoiding unclean people like tax collectors, and unclean places like a tax collector's home. And here's Jesus, the man whom people are saying is a prophet of God, a teacher from God, and here he is appearing to, to flout all the Pharisees' rules. They're angry. They think he's leading Israel astray. Now let's be honest, as you think about this scene, um, we all probably would have been uncomfortable with this too. And imagine going for a walk through your neighborhood and, and you pass that one house. You know, that, that house where there's always loud music blaring late into the night. Um, you know, the one where there always seems to be drug activity going on throughout the week and there's always suspicious people hanging around. 
And as you pass by, you can see into the backyard and you see that there's a barbecue happening. And there's lots of people, lots of noise. And lo and behold, whom do you see there? Enjoying the food, laughing, um, playing cornhole with some rough-looking dudes and some, some women of questionable reputation. It's one of your pastors. Let's say it's, it's Pastor Tom. <laughs> and there's Tom at that house with those people. And I know what your first thought would be, because it would be mine too. This does not look good. <laughs> Maybe is Tom starting to compromise his faith? Do I need to pull him aside and have a conversation with him? That's sort of like what's going on here. And the, the Pharisees are thinking, Jesus must not be from God. If he was, he, wouldn't be, he would steer clear of these dirty people. And then Jesus responds to their accusation. In verses 31 and 32, we read, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so there's these, these two sayings here. And the point of these sayings is not that some people need Jesus. You know, the really bad ones need Jesus. And then everybody else, they're okay. Um, Jesus is showing why it's entirely appropriate for him to be keeping the company that he keeps. Who needs a doctor? You know, when have you ever woken up in the morning and you say to yourself, I feel great today, I'm in excellent health, and so I think I'm going to schedule a colonoscopy? <laughs> Never, right? Or imagine your, your child or your grandchild breaks their arm, and so you rush them to the local emergency room, and after waiting in the waiting room for two hours, a nurse calls you back to an exam room, they set you up, you wait maybe another 30 minutes for a doctor to come in and see you, and then finally the doctor comes in, takes a look at the broken arm, and she says, you know, sorry, we only work with healthy people here. It would be absurd, right? Doctors tend to the sick, and the injured. And likewise, Jesus says he's come as a physician to deal with a sickness called sin that is far more deadly than any cancer you could think of, something that infects us all. How could Jesus not go to where the, the sick and the injured are? It's the very purpose for which he came. He said, I've come for this Reason and, and the Pharisees believe these are disgusting people who need to be shunned. That Jesus should keep his distance lest he be contaminated with their moral filth. But in Luke's Gospel, we see that Jesus' contact with sinners doesn't contaminate him. Instead, his touch imparts grace. His touch imparts forgiveness. He makes broken sinners whole and clean by the power of his own holiness. And you think just a little bit in, in chapter 5, a little bit earlier in chapter 5, Jesus touches the leper and the leper is made clean. Jesus restores the paralytic's legs and forgives him. And then here he calls Levi, a notorious tax collector. He calls him out of sin and darkness and transforms him into a disciple. And so Jesus' table fellowship, that whole question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
The reason is, is not just to defy the social conventions of the day, or even worse, to engage in revelry. He's calling sinners to repentance. He's ministering His grace to the very people who need it. And so it's a very brief story, but it's, it's packed with meaning and significance. And so for the, the remainder of our time, I want to try, try to draw some of it out. There are two questions you should ask yourself whenever you read or study the Gospels. There are at least two questions that you should ask. And, and the first is this. What does Jesus show us about himself here? What does Jesus show us about himself here. See, we all come to the Bible with ideas about who Jesus is. And that's true of you whether you're a church person or not. And we have these preconceived ideas about what he's like and we tend to read these stories through those lenses. And the real Jesus, the one we find here in Scripture, he's always more surprising than the Jesus we come up with in our own minds. And so let's allow Jesus here to show us who he is. And what he shows us is that he's the friend of sinners. Jesus is the friend of sinners. And you may know that 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 title was actually applied to him by his enemies. They meant it as an insult. They complained, why does he welcome and eat with sinners? And they called him the friend of sinners. Now, they meant it as a disparaging comment, but they spoke better than they knew. Jesus meals with sinners reveal his very heart. These meals where Jesus is reclining at table with men like Levi, they they show that Jesus is the friend of social outcasts. Jesus is the friend of the disreputable, the friend of moral failures, people who are deeply, deeply broken by their own sin and their own stupidity and the harm that others have done to them. And this meal with Levi and other sinners... It's not an isolated event. We see Jesus doing this kind of thing over and over again in the Gospels. And you've got to think about what's going on here. The, The Holy Son of God, the sinless Son of God, is drawn to sinful and broken people. Wherever He goes, He just gravitates toward the sinners. You think of John chapter 4, Jesus is passing through Samaria, and with whom does he sit down and talk? A sexually immoral Samaritan woman, somebody who was despised by Jews. Or Luke 19, which we'll look at in several weeks, Jesus passing through Jericho, and and whose house does he choose to stay in? A, A chief tax collector. So the worst of the worst, a man named Zacchaeus. Jesus says, I must stay at your house today. And he explains why. He says, because he came to seek and to save the lost. This is who Jesus is. This is the kind of Savior Jesus is. He's the friend of losers. He's the friend of failures. He's the friend of sinners. And that's wonderful news. And you know why? Because we're the losers. We're the sinners. We are the failures. And some of us are overt sinners. It's just very obvious. There's no question about it. Maybe we're a lot like Levi. And then others are covert sinners. But either way, Jesus comes to us as friend. 
You know, many of us are tempted to view Jesus as somebody who is disgusted by sinners like us. You know, he's the guy who, who stands on the other side of the street so he doesn't have to smell our moral stench. You know, the guy yelling at us with, with red face and, and veins popping out of his neck, shouting, turn or burn, clean yourself up, get your act together. And that's why this meal is so shocking. That's not what we find Jesus doing. It's almost like Jesus likes being around sinners. You know, he doesn't keep his distance. He's not repulsed by them. He comes near. He, eat and, he eats and drinks with them. Jesus sits down and gets to know them. He shows compassion and love. Now notice, Jesus does not affirm sinners in their sin. As Jesus uh, is hanging out with these folks, he doesn't give uncritical approval to their sinful lifestyles. Jesus doesn't say, hey, love doesn't judge, just be yourself, do whatever you think is right. Who am I to say otherwise? He, he doesn't do anything like that. He says he came to call sinners to repentance. And, and those who are hard-hearted and impenitent and die in their impenitence will find Jesus to be their judge. He takes sin seriously. But we wouldn't want a friend who just gives blanket approval to our sinful ways. You know, it would be unloving for Jesus to do that, to know that, that we are headed down a path of ruin and to let us just run farther and farther away from the God who created us. That's, that's not the kind of friend we want. That's not the kind of friend we need. And that's not the kind of friend that Jesus is. He doesn't affirm sinners in their sin. But this is the part that I think is so surprising to us. He, he holds out a wide-open invitation. A wide-open welcome. He says, come and I'll welcome you with open arms. I'll receive you. You know, there aren't a bunch of hoops to jump through. There's not some long period of probation to go through where you need to um, perform all these cleansing rituals. Come to me with all your sin. Come with all of your brokenness, all of your uncleanness. I will make you clean. I will take away your shame. And I'll begin to heal what's broken in you and make you whole again. Repent and follow me. So that's the first question. What does Jesus show us about himself? He's the friend and savior of broken sinners. The second question, also important, who am I in this story? How do I respond to Jesus? You see, the Gospels aren't meant to just give us historical data about Jesus in first century Judaism. They're designed to draw us in. They're designed to show us how, who Jesus is and how different people responded to him and then to provoke us to ask, um, how do I respond to Jesus? And so I'll pose the question to you. How do you respond to Jesus' welcome of sinners? Where are you at in this story? And there, there are at least two responses here in this story to Jesus. And the first comes from the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees, as you know, operated on a, a very common assumption. And it, it goes like this. God's kingdom is for good people. 
God welcomes the moral success stories. God likes winners, not losers. You know, it's kind of a God helps those who help themselves type theology. You know, do your best and pray that it's good enough. And, and we'll have more to say about Pharisees in the coming weeks, but for now I want to point out that many of us today still think like that. It's a quest for self-salvation. You know, and there's a religious version, and it, and it goes like this. I'm a good, if I'm a good person, God will like me. If I try my best to keep the rules, if I'm honest, hardworking, sexually pure, God will love me. He'll welcome me. He'll accept me. Now, the secular version doesn't use words like sin and salvation, but it's the same thing. It's the same quest for self-salvation. The tennis player Naomi Osaka has been in the news recently because she withdrew from the the French Open. And I read an interview with her, and in it she talked about how her perspective on tennis has been changing over the last several years, and actually in a good way. But she said that in the past, she used to weigh her entire existence on whether she won or lost a tennis match. Can you imagine how miserable of an existence that would be? The, the very justification for your entire existence is on the line every time you step on the tennis court. And that's how many of us approach life. You know, if I'm successful in my career, I have value. My life means something. If my classmates think I'm beautiful, then I'll be welcomed and I'll belong and be loved. Um, if I can achieve whatever it is, you know, uh, respect, um, popularity, power, it could be anything. I'll be satisfied. I will know happiness and my life will count. And we need to realize that self-salvation, whether it's the religious version or the secular version, doesn't work. It's a dead end. You know, you can never be good enough, smart enough, successful enough to silence that nagging fear that you don't measure up. You know, you can try, and for a time you might be able to suppress it and kind of deceive yourself into thinking everything's okay, but eventually that fear raises its head again. And if measuring up is what your life is built on, what happens when you fail? It sends you into a tailspin of of shame and anger and depression, doesn't it? You'll you'll loathe yourself, you'll loathe others who seem to be doing better than you are at the self-salvation game. The Pharisees thought they were righteous, that they, they were confident that God would gladly welcome them. I mean, why wouldn't he? Look at all that they're doing. They're not the sick. They're not the needy who need a physician. And where did it get them? It's so ironic in this story. They think they're the righteous ones and that God will welcome them. And here's God in human flesh at a feast with sinners and the Pharisees are on the outside. They're not at the party. They're not enjoying Christ's fellowship and welcome. Self-salvation is a dead end. It blinds us to our true need and to the gracious salvation that only Jesus can provide. So that's the, the first response to Jesus here in this story. But there's a second response, and we see it in, in Levi and the other sinners who came to Jesus. And, and this response, it's, it's neither self-righteousness nor despair. And those are really the only two options if you tread the, the self-salvation path, right? You're either going to become full of yourself or you're going to just give up 
and, and be hopeless about ever being welcomed by God. And that's not what they do. Instead, their response is one of desperate faith and trust in Jesus. You see, Levi and, and the other sinners who flocked to Jesus during his earthly ministry, they just came to Jesus. You know, no pretending about who they really were, no trying to um, put on a better um, face. They were honest about their sin. They were honest about how messed up they were. They didn't try to clean themselves up a bit first in order that Jesus would take a better liking to them. They just came to him. And with all their uncleanness, all their, unbroke, all their brokenness, all their baggage, they came to Jesus in faith. And as we see here, and we'll see again and again in Luke's Gospel, Jesus welcomes them. Jesus receives them. He puts his arm around them and says, your sins are forgiven. I've removed your guilt and shame. You belong to me now. And I can't help but think, that every time a sinner came to Jesus recognizing their brokenness and their need for his grace and friendship, that, that his face lit up with a giant smile. See, Jesus delights to welcome sinners. Jesus doesn't just tolerate sinners. Jesus doesn't receive sinners reluctantly as if it's the last resort and so he'll just go ahead and do it. Jesus takes joy in receiving sinners. When, when sinful, messed up people come to Jesus, he doesn't condemn them. Jesus doesn't mock them. He doesn't humiliate them for failing to measure up. And you know why? Because he was condemned in the place of sinners at the cross. The, the only human being who ever truly did measure up took our guilt and shame upon himself so that we could be welcomed to his feast. And this same Jesus that we read about here in Luke chapter 5, he is risen and alive today, and he's still the friend of sinners. And, and some of you here today might not be Christians, and we are very glad you're here. You are welcome here anytime. And maybe you've been attending for a while, and you're just kind of checking things out. I know that some of you, many of you, are here because your parents bring you. Now I want you to hear this. Jesus' message is not clean yourself up, then do your best, and if it all works out, I'll welcome you. No, he says, come to me. You're filthy, you're dirty, you're sinful, you're rebellious, you're disobedient, you've messed up your life, you've messed up other people's lives. Come to me. You don't need to try to measure up. You can't. Come to me and I will receive you. I won't turn you away. I will receive you and welcome you. And don't think this morning that, well, that all sounds good, but, but I'm too dirty. You don't know what I've done. Or I'm too broken. You just don't understand. I'm too screwed up. Friends, your sin is no match for Jesus' grace. Your sin won't shock Jesus. He already knows all about it anyway. <laughs> He's seen worse. And he still invites you to come to him and receive his forgiveness and cleansing. And more than that, to receive his loyal friendship. 
And Jesus continues to be the friend of sinners even after you become a Christian. You know, how many of us wonder whether Jesus is less friendly now that we've become one of his disciples? You know, the thinking kind of goes, well, of course he's merciful to those who come to him for the first time. You know, they, they, they don't know any better, but, but I should know better than to do what I've done. I call myself a follower of Christ, and, and maybe he's growing tired of me coming to him over and over again with the same sins, the same struggles, the same failures. Maybe he's, he's going to say at some point, you know what, enough, get out. You know what Jesus' response is? I came for sinners. It's not the healthy who need a physician. It's the sick. And I'm the physician who heals sick and broken sinners and makes them whole again. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so friends, keep coming to Jesus. This isn't a message that's only for those who have never come to Jesus. This is a message for those who have come to him and are still sinners, as we all are. Keep receiving his welcome. Jesus loves to forgive. We need to drill that into our heads and our hearts. He he loves to bind up wounds. It gives him joy to see you cleansed and forgiven by the blood that he shed at the cross. And your sins and your weaknesses and your failures do not bar you from the feast. They give you all the reason you need to be there with Him. Jesus is the friend of sinners. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And it's such a fitting um, climax or even conclusion to what we see here in Luke 5 this morning The the Lord's Supper represents the very thing that we've seen Jesus doing in this passage, that he receives sinners to himself and fellowships with them at a feast. You know, later in Luke's Gospel, Jesus gathers his disciples around a table for a celebration and he institutes the Lord's Supper and he explains that he will give himself as the sacrifice for his people's sin. His, His own body, his own blood to take away the stain of our guilt, to take away the shame of our sin to restore us to fellowship with our Creator and Maker. And He welcomes us to His table. He Himself endured the rejection that we deserve because of our sin so that we could receive His welcome at God's feast. And so every time we gather around this table and eat the bread and and drink from the cup, it's as if Jesus is impressing on us His love for sinners. It's Jesus saying, I came for you. I came to cleanse you, to make you whole. And and we catch a glimpse in the supper of Jesus' own joy that he has in in welcoming people like us to his table to feast on all that he is for us. It's an opportunity, another opportunity for us to bask in the grace of the friend of sinners who, who desires to fellowship with us around his table. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your scandalous grace. We thank you that you are the Savior of the ungodly. We thank you that you do not turn away from us in disgust when we come to you with our sin and brokenness, but you receive us 
forgive us and transform us by your own power. We pray, O Lord, that you would flood our hearts with an awareness of this this grace that we could never hope to earn, this grace that so often sounds too good to be true, but is so much better than we can imagine. Oh, Lord Jesus, let us know in delight in your great love for people like us. We pray in your name.